City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and uh, today we're going to be talking to Dave Sweeney in the last half of the show. Dave, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, talking about a number of items. In the budget, the government set aside money for the nuclear waste dump at Kimber in South Australia that Dave and um, particularly the local community and Indigenous people have been opposing quite strongly. The minister also, after the budget, talked about the fact that Australia should look at nuclear reactors here. And a major event over the weekend where BHP has stepped back from the Olympic Dam mine in South Australia, despite the government saying it's one of the priority uh, projects in the country. And good news over the weekend also for ICANN, of course, the international campaign against nuclear disarmament, against nuclear weapons, I'm sorry, it's for nuclear disarmament. It received its 50th uh, signatory and therefore now it's going to become international law, which is a major breakthrough. And that body, of course, started here in Australia. Day was in it from the outset. And it won the Nobel Peace Prize three years ago. So really good news. And it's unfortunate that we have to have good news on city limits. But today we'll make an exception. And Dave's going to talk about that. And I'm sure he'll be most enthusiastic. So that's today's program. I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Meg Kimber with us. We've got Zeb Peak with us. And we've got Karina still pressing the buttons there as well. So good morning to all the team. Morning. Good morning. Lots of lots of news today. Well, it's, yeah, heaps of news in that area, and and it should be an interesting discussion with Dave. We'll just have to ask him one question, and he'll go off running, and that'll be it for the show. We could probably finish up early and wander off. That should be it. Yeah. <laughs> go down the coffee lounge or something. We can't do that at the moment. We still can't. We might by Wednesday, though. Monday morning, we can't. By Wednesday morning, we might be able to go to the coffee lounge. Who knows? I'm really? Gonna, speaking of which, I'm going to pour some tea. Here we go. Do you know something about about the uh, restrictions that we don't know, Kevin? <laughs> well, well, well. He's saying that he, in the next day or two he's going to make an announcement, and the oh. what he was talking about yesterday, the tests in the northern suburbs have all so far come back negative. So, hopefully, in the next day or two there'll be at least some more opening up than we've currently oh. got. Oh, that's exciting. The listeners will know that by Wednesday morning if, if it has or hasn't happened. Cutting edge news here on City Limits, pre-recorded on a Monday. Hmm. So to state the obvious, they'll know one or yeah. one way or the other. Kevin, Yep. before we get into the breaking news from the Herald Sun, can we introduce Deb a little bit and, and get her to say something about herself and her experience? Well, yes, she certainly can. Yes, we can. All right. Zeb, Peak. Yes, hello. You're part of the uh, Friends of the Earth Sustainable Cities campaign. I believe you've done a master's in something uh, related to sustainable cities. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yes, I can. So, hi, I'm Zeb. My voice is actually appearing in this episode this time. And yes, I did a Master of Environment, not really specialising in anything in particular, but I studied a bit of politics and environmental policy in that, um, including a transport politics subject that got me on to volunteering at Sustainable Cities, which is mostly about sustainable transport. But I'm interested in everything climate justice related and environmental related. So that's me. Amazing. We're so lucky to have you here. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Yay. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's our pleasure. We're thankful you want to be. <laughs> Look, the first I want to raise is to do with um, a grant that's gone to academia to promote Australian values and historical understanding of Australia. But it's been attacked by, surprise, surprise, the Institute of Public Affairs, which says it gives a distorted view of our history and culture. And incredibly, they have a person, their spokesperson is the Foundations of Western Civilization Program Director. 
an amazing title called Bella Debrera, and she's very upset. She says the focus on Australia's history is that the modern state of Australia was brought into existence by violence, dispossession and colonial oppression, while modern society and culture is characterised by social inequality, crisis and conflict, which she thinks is quite dreadful. But uh, I'm just wondering which bits of that are, are actually wrong. Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate to me. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um, the, that's, her, that's her point of view. And uh, she said the academics are responsible for shaping the national narrative and they shouldn't get this because they're preaching rubbish, apparently. It's funny how um, that, that outlook on things is like, oh, you can't say anything bad because it's going to make reality, make people think it's bad. And uh, actually, things are actually bad. And those things are true. So yeah. it's kind of like shooting the messenger, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's like the massive expansion they're planning for the National War Museum in Canberra, which is really under the leadership recently has turned into just a tribute to war and how wonderful war is. Mm. But while mm. they're expanding and putting all these um, new facilities in and all these weapons are going to be shown, they refuse to have any concession at all to the fact that there were... Uh, there were colonial wars in Australia and the whole dispossession mm. of the Indigenous mm-hmm. people. They're not regarded as wars, obviously. So yeah. same situation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. A, a mob um, at the Australian National University School of Politics and International Relations did a paper that um, certainly a, it's a title that grabs you. It's Judicial Ideology in the Absence of Rights, Evidence from Australia, which I'm sure will get a million people reading it. But they've looked at about 20 or more high court judges of recent years and rated them in terms of whether they're progressive or quite conservative. And not surprisingly, Michael Kirby tops the list. Stephen Gagler is a bit of a surprise in second place. But I raise it because at the very bottom, and the, interestingly enough, the top six most progressives were appointed by Labor governments, and the of the bottom bottom eight or ten, only two were Labor appointments. The rest were all by the coalition, including, of course, Dyson Hayden. Now, he comes in second last, just ahead of Cowan, and second conservative, if you like, the other end of the scale. And I raise that because he, of course, was the judge appointed by the coalition government, but also who was then appointed by a coalition government to crush the union. So he ran the, um, and we know what happened during that, but he's just the point that Hayden comes in second last. And so any wonder the government appointed him to do the Royal Commission into the construction unions. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting that Labor actually appointed two of the um, most conservative. <laughs> Just goes yeah, well, that's, that's so. Yeah, but... Liberal wouldn't have done any, appointed any of the progressives, that's for sure. No, Keane and Gummo were the two Labor appointments who come down toward the bottom of the uh, of the list, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, this week's clean-away news, <laughs> we have it every week, um, <laughs> but, and they were, of course, being attacked for bullying at, the top, bullying at the top level. But this week, there was a meeting between the Transport Workers' Union over the new, new enterprise agreement they're trying to, to reach, and the the story this week, a senior manager at Cleanaway Waste Management has been reported to the company's head of human resources after a meeting with the TWU descended into unorganised and aggressive chaos and had to be terminated. The state secretary of the union, John Berger, has written to their uh, human resources boss, after the meeting, it was Friday a week ago, and that the union may report the company to Victoria Police or make an application to the Fair Work Commission. He mm. said Cleanaway's operation manager, Erin Schultz, who was responsible for managing the company's contracts with local government customers, acted in an aggressive manner toward TWU Chief of Staff Mem Suleiman, including when he stormed into the personal space of the union official. So appalling was the conduct that Mr. Suleiman had to repeatedly ask Mr. Schultz to walk back over to his chair and to calm down. So aggressive was the conduct, Mr. Schultz started shaking and threw objects across the table, not once but twice. The dramatic episode lasted well over a minute. Now, one of the things he threw, which was interesting, was scrunched up copies of all the articles we've been quoting from the from the financial review, so they're obviously getting to them. <laughs> and a cleanaway spokesman said, the circumstances of last week's meeting with the union at one of our depots in Melbourne during EBA 
labour negotiations are under investigation. The company has been negotiating the enterprise agreement in good faith. They all say that, don't they? Yeah. And look forward to successful negotiations. Um, Berger, the union bloke, said that while the enterprise bargaining agreement meeting was organised in good faith, Cleanaway did not present with the intention to resolve or move forward with negotiations and address these serious workplace concerns, such as recent members' surveys that found almost half of members did not feel safe at work and 90% saying they felt pressured. Only 12% of the TWU members at Cleanaway said the business communicated with them effectively. When the behaviour continued to escalate, the TWU terminated the meeting immediately and questioned whether or not police needed to be involved after our representatives were stood over and became the target of thrown objects, etc., etc. The disgraceful display of behaviour was unprofessional and a disproportionate reaction to what was supposed to be a good both goes on, but uh, that's the latest on them. Wow. So, well, more next week, I guess. Yeah, I really feel for the staff at CleanAway. Yeah. 90% don't feel like they're safe at work. That's that's terrible. Yep, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we had a story last week where they were emptying medical stuff by hand mm. and you know, transferring mm. it from bin to bin, which is pretty yeah. dangerous. Awful. Yeah. yeah, the CleanAway news seems to keep piling on. <laughs> well, they're on this program, Zeb, because um, we're really taking interest in them because we've, for years we've followed the saga of the toxic waste up at Tullamarine, which has been refused to be really cleaned up and is a health hazard to that community, yeah. and it's clean away, which refuses to do it. So they've been getting mentioned on this program for years, and they still you know, won't spend the money they need to really make the things safe for the community at at the, near the Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump, yeah. Right. Solidarity to the workers there um, and, and in their negotiations. Hopefully that will help, yeah. I'm sure we more come out on that one. Um, on industrial relations, um, it's pretty incredible when you think about the impact it must be having on, on education, but RMIT, which is claiming it's been the hardest hit by the loss of international students, they forced 200 staff out, or at least they, yeah, 200 staff were forced out in September, lapis last month. But earlier they had 355 redundancies through voluntary redundancy. So that's a lot of people. And the union campus spokesperson Liam Ward said the total figure could be as high as a thousand when casuals and the non-renewal of fixed-term contracts were added. And there are other jobs losses that are subsidiary: a College of Science, Engineering, and Health. And you know the, the numbers of people losing must mean that eventually they. They just can't operate. It's mm. uh, an incredible number of people losing their jobs in academia. Yeah. It's been considered a, a, a something that everybody has to do is like go through the academic um, system and, and gain those kind of degrees and awards through there. And, and at the same time, the vocational education industry and services have been depleted and underfunded. And, and then at the end of it, if you progress all the way through and climb all the way up the ladder, you get a PhD, you're rewarded with a huge amount of job insecurity and, um, mm-hmm. and conditions that are really tough. So it's an, interesting, it's an interesting little bit of propaganda, you might say, that that's the best, best direction to go for employment. Yeah. And, and with unis now having you know, multi-campuses around the place, a lot of casuals are forced to be at one campus at a given time and another one, and they've got to move around at their own expense. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite ridiculous, really. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a case gone at the moment that's proceeding. It hasn't. It's still being heard, but the TWU again, they've taken Deliveroo to court about that old issue of whether they're they're direct employees or whether they're not, whether they, you know, whether they're so-called contractors, and that case is going on, um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. The TWU claims that. That uh, obviously they claim that delivery riders are employees and entitled to minimum pay and conditions, etc. But that's that's mm. ongoing, and it does seem that in running Deliveroo are sort of changing some of their rules to try to conform to what to their own argument that they're not. So we'll see what happens out of that one. Mm. I do want to move on to an interesting item that the government gave Foxtel, which is of course the the private uh, subscription channel of Rupert Murdoch. $30 million a couple of years ago 
to broadcast underrepresented sports on subscription television. And then it gave them another 10 million to cover women's soccer just more recently, which is interesting. And, and at the same time, the ABC is complaining that it's had a cutback on its sports coverage because the government hasn't given it any funds. And in fact, funds are being cut. But the ABC wants to broadcast and has broadcast, in fact, some of the Matildas, the Australian women's soccer team, some of their international matches. But to do that, it's been forced to pay Foxtel for the rights to do it. So you've got a situation where Foxtel has received at least $40 million in government funding, uh, so it will broadcast so-called underrepresented sports, and yet when the public broadcaster that's been starved wants to show some, it has to pay Foxtel, which had already received lots of public money anyway, which seems to be quite outrageous, I would have thought. So outrageous. That's so frustrating. Is there any story behind how Foxtel ended up with those funds? Uh, it's run by Rupert Murdoch. That's probably <laughs> the story. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the government cuts ABC. It doesn't believe in the public sector at all, and it gives it to the private sector. I think that's that's the simple answer, I suppose. And, of course, Murdoch's for a long time been trying to get into other ABC areas like Radio Australia and, and, and our Asian coverage, which the government's cut back anyway. But, yeah, they just want to own the lot. Which brings us, of course, to, and not necessarily related to that last item, but it does bring us to Meg the concept of a Federal Integrity Commission. Mm -hmm. And the opposition and people supporting some sort of corruption or federal corruption authority mm. have been saying, look, you've had it since December last year, the draft legislation, but we haven't seen it. Yeah. And the government and the Prime Minister says, well, yeah, I've been too busy. There's been bushfires, coronavirus, and I would have thought though, with all the resources of government, they might have been able to do something about a report, the legislation they received in December. But now Christian Porter, the Attorney General, says there's no hurry to establish a National Integrity Commission and it would need a detailed and extensive consultation period before further steps are taken. <laughs> <laughs> they love that. So they just want to keep drawing it out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And at the same time, of course, as we're looking at this 30 million payment for land worth three, mm. and I keep pointing out it's now leased back to the Perridge brothers who leased it, who who got the windfall in the first place mm. for less than a million. It's been rented back to them on a valuation of less than a million. Although the Perridge brothers do say it was a reasonable price, but then again, you would, wouldn't you, if you got 30 million for something worth three? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure their word uh, to be taken, absolutely. But Matthias Corbyn, who's about to head off somewhere else, he's about to go out the door, he signed off on it, but he brushed off any connection, any saying he did anything wrong. He had saying he had no visibility of the transaction, whatever that means. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, it's concerning. And the other thing is you mentioned about coronavirus and everything and, um, of course, because of the restrictions and the situation of, of having to impose new laws at a short notice, there's actually the Centre for Public Integrity who we've had on the show before who are pushing for the National Integrity Commission to happen at a federal level have done some recent research seeing that sort of executive powers of, of politicians have increased uh, hugely over the last eight to ten years, which means that a lot of laws are being made not through parliament, but actually just as like a special uh, power of, of a politician over their particular area. Able to rule by regulation, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there is an allowance that, that those legislations can be looked at by a special parliamentary sort of body, but um, that doesn't always happen and some of them aren't eligible for that oversight. So um, just an interesting additional factor when we're looking at federal politics and of course bearing in mind that yeah something has to be done about coronavirus but um that we do need to keep an eye on our government and that the the way that that uh, government is working is holding the, the way that parliament is working is holding the government to account and ensuring that there's oversight and, and uh, scrutiny of the decisions that they make mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's, that's quite dangerous isn't it exactly 
on the land deal, of course, it's now gone to the Australian Federal Police and it's the first time for, for years that the Auditor General has referred something to the Federal Police. He said, he said it had not happened in his, in his time. The grant here, the, the Auditor General said, uh, but the police are now looking at it as a, as a criminal matter. So we'll, oh. again, we'll see what comes out of all that. That's great. Yes, it is. Yeah. And also this week it was announced because ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, it's, um, it places all these things and it's got senior lawyers at the top. And then you might have noticed that uh, James Shipton, the chairman, he was Australian, went to America, came back, but he wanted his tax situation and the complications of tax from America sorted out. And they paid... $180,000 of the public money to, to sort out his tax affairs for him. Now, I would have thought that should have been his own responsibility. And also, Daniel Crennan, QC, the deputy chairperson, he moved from Melbourne to Sydney, and as a result, ASIC has paid $70,000 in rent for him. Now, I would have thought, again, a, a QC could probably afford to pay his own rent, no matter where he lives and works. And as a result of being sprung, actually, at a Senate inquiry last week, they've decided to pay back the money. But it's just um, it's more examples of what sort of things that need to be looked at, I think, by these sort of bodies. Exactly. So we'll see what happens. Another one I did want to raise is that um, we've talked before about Solomon Liu, who runs all these um, these clothing stores in shopping centres and he's been refusing to pay rent and he's been saying he needs to adjust rent to his income and all sorts of things. He's received he's received about seventy million in wage subsidies under JobKeeper and he in fact was one of the people who urged the government to bring in JobKeeper and to subsidise bosses for, for workers' pay. But it's interesting that He's paid his offsider, his chief executive, received two and a half million bonus in this period. Wow. Uh, which is quite interesting. So while he's got $70 million in taxpayer funds to pay workers, and is himself saying he's, he wants the right to decide what rent he's going to pay uh, retail landlords, he's handing out two and a half million to his chief executive simply as a bonus. And he and the chief executive received 5.4 million in pay at the same time. So it's not it's all very interesting. Is another use of public funds? Yes, indeed. Um, our guest is here, everybody. And uh, so, unless there's anything else you pressing that you want to uh, address, Kevin. No, just before we go today, the only other one I did want to mention because I think it's an interesting reflection on the on the privatisation process. The Port of Melbourne. The Port of Melbourne was privatised by the state government a couple of years ago, and mm -hmm. I think everyone who opposes privatisation said this would be a disaster as usual. Now we've got the government pleading with the new owners for fairer outcomes after the state regulator, the Essential Services Commission, reported that the port was abusing its monopoly power to drive up rents. Wow. Now, what a surprise but now it's out of our hands. All we can do is ask them to be nice and not do it. Just another reflection on privatisation, that's all. But uh, we've got Dave Sweeney here. So, look, we'll take a break, come back, and we'll talk to Dave about uh, latest developments in, in in the nuclear area, in the uranium area, including, as we said earlier, for once a, a feel-good, good news story for city limits. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Okay, back on city limits, and during the break, Dave Sweeney said we've got a couple of really big good news stories, which is a bit of a pity, this is city limits, but we're going to break our normal rules and have a good news story. Oh dear, oh well, we'll do it. Dave, of course, is, as I said earlier, the anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. Dave, before we get to the good, or well, I suppose it's a good news story as well, uh, interesting over the weekend, BHP, now a couple of months ago, Morrison said that the Olympic Dam mine in South Australia would become one of the great projects of this country, but over the weekend, BHP seems to have stepped away from it. Yeah, that's right, Kevin. It's um, a very uh, significant thing. So BHP is the world's largest mining company. Um, they've got a massive mine in northern South Australia called Olympic Dam, copper and uranium. 
and they were looking at a very significant expansion in the order of $4 billion. And uh, as you've just said, um, in June, Prime Minister Morrison said that this was uh, a fast-tracked project that was essential for COVID recovery and that green tape would be cut to enable it to go ahead. The South Australian government had likewise, Kevin designated this as a major project and had given every indication that they were going to rapidly facilitate its approval. And yes, tail end of last week, uh, the world's biggest miner did a further feasibility study, crunched the commodity prices and the, the mineralogy, the actual nature of the ore body, and put the 4 billion back on the shelf. So that's a really significant reprieve for the environment because this was a very thirsty and very damaging mine, still is, but one of the key things about um, solving a major problem, Kevin, is not to make it worse. And that's what's happened with this decision. BHP have not made Olympic Dam go from horrible to double horrible. So it is a, it's a really important reprieve. But I suppose the other thing that's really clear here is it really shows that um, companies make decisions, like it's hardly surprising for any of us or any listeners, but companies make decisions in the interest of that company in interest of their shareholders, not in any sort of national interest, and they will change. And so clearly what we need to do, and particularly a state like South Australia, which is just sort of uh, weighted down by its reliance on the resource sector, we need to diversify our economy away from over-reliance on, you know, high-impact, low-certainty resource projects. Dave, when you say they put the $4 billion back on the shelf, did they give it back or did they actually just keep it for a different project? <laughs> no, it's their money. That's the thing with BHP. They they had $4 billion allocated internally. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah. That goes to more of the group's work in different places. Okay. They will spend a bunch of money still at Olympic Dam. They're upgrading the airstrip. They're upgrading the smelter. They're doing stuff and it still is a massive project, but it was going to double mm. and now it's not. So there's a, real, there's a couple of really important things there. One is that point about dependence and the political domination of the resource sector. Mm. But the other that is a really interesting one, I reckon, for the times that we're living in now, is that no amount of political spin or access or preferential treatment or favours can paper over very big cracks. And, the, and at Olympic Dam, the very big cracks were the complex nature of the ore body and the fundamental weakness of the uranium commodity price after Fukushima, something we've spoken about before. But you put those two together, low commodity price, complex ore body, um, and they just make a very hard-headed or for miners hard-headed decision to not advance this. And the politicians are now in a spin. They're all pointing at each other, Labor and the coalition in South Australia, um, also replicated on a federal level and saying, well, who failed to give BHP what they needed? Mm. Well, tragically, the reality is no one did. Australian politicians fell over themselves to facilitate the big Australian. They fell over themselves and cut corners and rubber stamping approvals. And BHP still looked at it and said, look, the money doesn't stack up. And ultimately, triple bottom line is pounds, dollars and euros. And that's what we're interested in. And we're not spending four billion bucks. Mm. Fantastic news. So does that kind of, is that an indication that the tides are maybe turning and that that project might be off the cards permanently? I think, that, Zeb, that project uh, will be, the, the massive expansion will be off the cards. I think that's what we're seeing. And I think that's really major, uh, really major news and a really significant reprieve. I think, you know, that they're going to continue with the project at Olympic Dam, which is copper, 200,000 tonnes of copper and, you know, uranium and gold. And that'll continue. So there'll continue to be significant impacts and, and consequences and unsafe tailing storage facilities and unsustainable water use. The good news is that, you know, that won't be as bad as it might have been. I think, though, your point about fundamentals is, is I think it signals the end of the sort of big end of town taking uranium seriously as a beneficial commodity. We're, we're looking now at Rio Tinto exiting uranium operations in Kakadu. We've got BHP um, looking at the uranium price and seeing that that lacks an economic rationale for them to spend big and expand Olympic Dam. And we've got the world's biggest uranium miner, the Canadian company Cameco, which Zeb owns two projects in WA and has said that they are on the shelf 
they're going to be warehoused till the market improves. I don't think that market's going to improve in a hurry. So we, we are seeing globally a really significant contraction of the uranium sector, and that's good news too. Yeah. You mentioned, Dave, that they they only care about their bottom line and not the environment. Well, I have to have to take you on on that one because they made two statements last week I found quite interesting before they announced the weekend announcement. But they said to limit future expansion to 300,000 tonnes of copper could deliver a win for the environment by ensuring less water is extracted from the Great Artesian Basin for the mine's operations, showing they really care about the water they use. And they also said that high uranium levels would Within the Olympic Dam resource, I mean it has always been more complicated to mine than most other locations, including the nearby copper mines of Oz Minerals, which have lower uranium levels. Now, that would seem to indicate they realise uranium can be a bit dangerous. That's actually really spot on the money because what they're doing now, what what's happening here, is that once upon a time they championed the uranium dimension of Olympic Dam. You know, this is clean energy for, you know, the resource hungry, this and that. And now as uranium's price has fallen and as the social license has has significantly shrunk, Kevin, there's been this repositioning where uranium is not the boom or the Midas mineral that copper is. BHP talk all the time about how copper will fuel a renewable revolution in energy and copper is pivotal in so much of the renewable pathways of of energy so there's something in that but it's gone further when now uranium is not just even a byproduct but seen as a problem a contaminating factor for copper and it'd be better if we didn't have this mixed ore body it's quite extraordinary and like even dan van house pelican the long-named south australian resource minister spoke last week and spoke about uranium as effectively incidental to the operations and complicating factor. That's an amazing, an amazing arc in a decade from this is the mineral that is great, it's going to make us rich and it's going to power the world to this mineral's a hassle and we're not going to spend more money digging it up. So I think that sort of mirrors and reflects the fact that in so many countries, renewables are actually smashing both fossil fuel and nuclear power out of the park for deployability, cost efficiency, and massively more popular on, with social license. So, you know, we're seeing that effect happen. And obviously, this uranium commodity price has been absolutely smashed uh, following Fukushima. So Fukushima happened in March 2011. If we go 10 years ago, the uranium price was around 130 US dollars a pound. They measure it in US dollars per pound. If we go today, it's 30. And the intervening factor was Fukushima, which was directly fueled by Australian uranium. There was Australian uranium that was in the reactor when it melted down. And when that happened, 50 reactors in Japan were shut off. They were just powered down. Most of those have not come back online. Many of those never will. There's 400 odd reactors in the world. So you lose a big percentage in one hit and the rest get under increased pressure and the rest have harder and harder licensing lines for their extension. One third of the world's reactor fleet's coming to the end of its safe operating life in the next five years. So this is an industry that has still has massive political and institutional power. No one should underestimate how much power this mob have to influence regulators and influence politicians. But the fundamentals of it both in in the growth of the alternative to what they provide and in the growth of the costs and the complexities that they have to manage um, mean that um, it's plateauing now and its trend will be, it'll be a long tail, but it's down. Dave, we've spoken before with you on City Limits about how um, the current coalition government is a champion for uh, uranium and, and nuclear power, claiming that it's a, a, a clean power. Do you sense that any of this uh, shift in within the industry is going to translate into a shift in, in the political sphere? I think that's a really good question. I think in the short term, what we'll see is uh, is increased activity to try and bang the nuclear drum and to try and get preferential uh, treatments. We're seeing that with the significant industry bodies uh, calling for domestic nuclear power. 
But I think uh, part of that, Meg, will, like no one is going to build nuclear power in Australia of the reactors that exist in the world. Even the Australian Nuclear Association has said they make no sense to build here. What everyone's pinning their hopes on are effectively reactors that exist on paper and in the imagination and, you know, what are termed small modular reactors. And the industry has this massive hope, and it was reflected recently in their budget allocation and in, you know, Angus Taylor's uh, energy roadmap about maybe in the future there might be a smaller reactor that is more modular, more contained, less problematic, and we can use that instead. Maybe let's keep the door open for that. It's a real promise rather than performance-driven positioning, but there's many people in this country that will not go down uh, lightly on nuclear power. They won't ease up on it. They push for it for a whole range of ideological reasons. I would like to think, Meg, that what we've seen here at Olympic Dam is a whole range of political players and industry advocates and, and financiers all saying, yes, good to go, good to go at Olympic Dam, whatever we can do to make it happen. And the company involved sits down and looks at it and says, no, it actually doesn't stack up. And I hope that happens very much on the energy level where major energy retailers and generators in Australia just say, can you stop talking about nuclear? We've got these old trashy, dirty, polluting coal assets, which are no longer assets. We need to phase them down. We need to ramp up renewables. That's clearly the direction we've got to be going. Yeah. The water, Dave, they mentioned that ensuring less water is taken. Well, how big of them? Uh, but that water they take from the Great Artesian Basin and other sources at uranium mines and various mines around the country, do they pay for that or do they get it for free? They get it for free. They, it's, it's quite extraordinary, that one, Kevin. I, I think it's one of the really sort of unknown outrageous colonial dimensions of the resource industry in this country. So South Australia is the driest state in Australia. Australia is the driest continent on earth. And BHP is one of the world's largest industrial user of underground water. So that fossil water from the Great Artesian Basin, they have a licence to suck up 42 million litres of that every day. They were with this expansion pushing to make that 50 million litres every day. They currently routinely do north of 30 million litres a day. And that's ancient water. So it's landed from rainfall that would have landed on the dinosaurs. And it's percolated through and it's in the Great Artesian Basin and they are sucking it up at an absolutely unsustainable rate. Now, the basin's massive, but its recharge is slow. And when you extract like that, that's really, really tough. They don't pay a cent for it. They have to process it. They say, well, we have to value add to it. We have to pull it up. We have to desalinate it so it's usable and potable and this and that. But they don't pay for the raw material. So this material, without which you're dead in three days, they're sucking up 30 plus million litres, licensed for 42 million litres each and every day and not one cent. So every time I walk past a shop, Kevin, and I, I see, you know, there's water, 600 mil bottles of water for three bucks. I just think, can someone just charge our mining sector? I don't expect them to charge them five bucks a litre, but I tell you what, not airport prices. But can we have some price that reflects that this is a precious commodity, that reflects that it is a finite commodity and reflects that it is a publicly owned asset? Not that it's just sort of crap. And if you can turn a dollar, feel free to raid the water because it precludes uses from other users other industrial and pastoral users, other residential users, cultural flows of water, spiritual flows, community water. It consumes and contaminates vast quantities of the stuff which is essential for life to dig up a mineral, the uranium component of which is anything but. It's completely nonsensical. The other item in the budget that, apart from Taylor saying we, we, can, we should start looking at possible nuclear in the future, was of course they, in what, in what was dressed up as an environmental allocation, they said they were providing money for the Kimber nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Um, comment on that, Dave? Yeah, so Kimber's a, a little town about 800 to 1,000 people and it's 90 minutes west of Port Augusta, top of the Air Peninsula in SA. It's now been scoped down after a, a pretty exhaustive and pretty gruelling process and a very exclusive and, and reductionist process by the federal government as the site 
for uh, national radioactive waste facilities. So Kevin, the plan is all low level waste or a chunk of it is transported to Kimber and effectively buried. No intention to recover, so it's a disposal facility. And next door to that, on the other side of the, of the razor wire fence is a large shed. And in that shed is Australia's intermediate level waste. And that's stored there above ground with a promise that sometime in the next 100 years, a future government through a future process and using future unidentified money will come back and move that material for deep geological burial somewhere other than Kimber. So we're going to bury the low level, we're going to store the intermediate level for maybe up to 100 years and this will be great. It'll be great for the town, there'll be 45 jobs and a swag of cash. It's been a highly contested issue. It's contested for a range of reasons. Probably one of the most driving ones for many people is that the region's traditional owners, the bungalow people, fought for 20 years to get their native title back, Kevin, as you'd know, and many listeners know that's a, a pretty bruising and pretty protracted process. They got their native title back and within a month or so of getting it back, there was this federal government proposal to put radioactive waste on their country. They then said, well, we've got to be included in a vote, in a ballot. The federal government had a local community ballot to take the temperature of the idea. And the bungalow people were deliberately and consciously excluded from that ballot. They then took federal court action to uh, try and insert themselves back in that process. The federal court said, look, yes, your neighbours, yes, you're affected, yes, you're excluded, but you're not excluded because you're Aboriginal, you're excluded because you're not registered ratepayers with the District Council of Kimber. And so therefore, although it's unfortunate, it's not unlawful. Now that is an absurd way to make significant and lasting intergenerational policy decisions in the 21st century. You know, oh, well, you haven't got a view if you're not a ratepayer in this little town of a thousand people. That's not the way to develop a national radioactive waste management strategy. So that's just one of a score of issues, including the double handling. 95% of Australia's worst radioactive waste, the intermediate level waste, stuff, Kevin, that needs to be isolated from people in the planet for 10,000 years, 95% of it's currently where it was generated, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO's facility in Sydney. And that's simply the best place, or perhaps it might make more sense to say the least worst place for that waste to be till we decide what is the long-term solution or the long-term responsible management approach. But to put it, that material, from a place where it already is, where it's secured, where the regulator says it can stay for decades, where there's 24-7 federal coppers and security, and a place that has the highest level of radiation monitoring and emergency response in the nation, and to chuck it on a truck and to drive it 1,700 kilometres and put it in a paddock in the grain belt of South Australia and say we'll get back to you sometime in the next 100 years with the next level of the plan is just kicking the can down the road and it's actually pretty gormless and deeply irresponsible. So there's a lot of people unhappy about this. In the recent weeks, there's been a lot of movement, like you said. You said there was money in the budget. There was. There was $100 million plus in the budget for this. There was also, the last time the Senate sat, there was a, a move to introduce or to change the National Radioactive Waste Laws, Kevin, and the plan there was the, the federal government and Minister Pitt are moving to introduce amendments to our existing waste laws that would do two things. One is they would cement Kimber as the preferred site for a national facility. And the second thing, and most importantly, is they would explicitly remove the ability of anyone to contest that, any judicial review of that siting decision, which just means that Aboriginal people, local grain growers, local community people, many of whom are deeply concerned about this, would not get even to have a day in court, which is a pretty fundamental right in a democracy to have independent judicial review of, of political decisions. So it's, it's a move of a government that wants to shut down any sort of transparency, accountability or scrutiny of what is a really deeply flawed decision. The good news of that is that the government, although they had listed it on the Senate list as a priority piece of legislation, throughout the course of that sitting period, they didn't introduce it and they simply didn't have the confidence that they had the political numbers in the Senate to get it through. The Greens had come out early and said that they had opposed. Labor, to their credit, federal Labor, came out and said that they opposed 
these amendments and that they believe that a legal recourse is, is a pivotal democratic right and protection. And the crossbench, although they didn't declare, the crossbench had some pretty deep concerns and signalled that they were less than convinced and unhappy. So the feds leaned on the crossbench. They did lots and lots of political pushing but they still didn't introduce the legislation, which makes us think, and it very clearly is, that they weren't confident that they had the number. So that's important and positive because we actually need to revisit this waste issue, not just as a political point scoring issue, but in order not to make a really significant mistake, a really significant intergenerational policy mistake. And so that reprieve of them not getting that legislation up and not being able to steamroll on was really important. And one of the things that we're hoping and working for is that when the Senate resumes on the 9th of um, November, should the government move this legislation again, that there is not the support, they're not able to do it, and they have to go back a little bit to the drawing board and stop playing sort of, uh, you know, basically bully politics and start playing evidence-based politics. Yeah, all right. Um, I was going to say, can it be stopped? But I won't, because we've got to get on to the big item, I guess, from your point of view to this, this weekend. Um, Sunday, the good news story, um, ICANN, which, of course, um, the international campaign against nuclear weapons, which started here in Australia and which won the Nobel Peace Prize three years ago, and a big announcement on Sunday, Dave. Yeah, it was a massive announcement. Really, really significant, um, where the 50th nation signed the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons and that means when the when the 50th ratified sorry not signed there's many more that have signed but the 50th nation ratified and so that then means it triggers that this treaty moves from a treaty to international law so in 90 days after the 50th ratification this becomes part of the body of international humanitarian law so that is really significant because what it means is on the 22nd of January next year, early in the start of what will hopefully be a, a lighter and easier and more generous year, there will be a really positive thing. There will be for the first time ever, for the first time ever, nuclear weapons will be against the law. They'll be illegal. That is a really important moral point. It's a really important political point, but it's also, this is, this is far more, Kevin, than a bit of gesture politics or feel good. It actually really significantly opens the door to a whole range of legal and political and procedural operations and options to challenge nuclear weapons, both the nuclear weapon states and the so-called supporter or umbrella states like Australia, Japan, South Korea and the NATO alliance. It also means that money flows will move. We've already seen European pension funds begin the process of recalibrating their screens for investment and moving money away from nuclear weapons corporations. So the whole aim of this treaty, Kevin, we as people and civil society can't say, Putin, Trump, just wake up to yourself, put down those weapons, give us the keys, give us the codes, we're smashing them up. We can't do that directly but we can do that routinely through shrinking the space, you know, in a swampian way, in a Trumpian way, draining the swamp that facilitates, finances, permits and excuses what are weapons of mass murder. So that's really important. It was really good to see on the weekend, the Red Cross, a whole bunch of international medical groups, faith groups, all these others coming out strongly supporting, the UN Secretary General coming out strongly supporting. And here in Australia, great to see... Federal Labor Party coming out, the alternative government, and saying Labor supports a world full of nuclear weapons, uh, free of nuclear weapons, not full of. Labor <laughs> <laughs> supports a world free of nuclear weapons and that Labor in government, once they're confident that this aligns with the detail of other treaty obligations, which we are assured from the ICANN side that it does, Labor and government will sign and ratify this treaty. Now, that's a really important step. So there's a lot that's very positive about this. And, and like you said, this has been a long time coming. This ratification happened on the same day that the UN celebrated its 75th anniversary, Kevin. So there's a nice symmetry there because the first resolution of the United Nations was a call for action on nuclear weapons. And then 75 years later, we get the delivery of the platform that will actually ramp that up now. It's a long time coming, 
But I think now we're getting to a point where we're building a massive momentum. I'm not trying to um, gild the lily. This will be very hard. It will be long and protracted. There are nuclear weapon states that do not like this treaty. The US last week, Kevin, wrote to nations, not just who were thinking about it, but who had already signed, urging them to withdraw from this treaty. That's quite remarkable in international diplomatic circles. So there's a lot of love from small nations, non-nuclear nations, progressive nations for this treaty. There's a lot of resistance from the nuclear weapon states. And there's a lot of excuses and shaking from, if you like, the collaborators in the holding of weapons of mass murder in Canberra and Tokyo and elsewhere. So we will see. Pressure will grow. But what has changed here is that there is a clear call that on the basis of the humanitarian impacts of these weapons, that they do not serve a purpose and cannot be considered as a legitimate security tool. They are, in fact, a rogue weapon of mass destruction. And it's fantastic that community action that grew actually in Melbourne, launched from an initiative in Melbourne, like you say, has now spread around the world and has turned into what we describe as our best way to get rid of our worst weapons. Well done, Dave. That's so awesome. Good on you, Meg. Thanks. Hey. 22nd of January. Let's have a big party. <laughs> like, assuming that we can gather in groups, but like, <laughs> hopefully a face to face one. That's right. <laughs> it would be great to be out on the streets just celebrating um, international law, making it clear that nuclear weapons are a crime. So, that's incredible. That's a huge achievement. It is. It's a really positive and it's, it's a positive thing and it's a tribute to the hard work of so many people for so long. You know, ICANN just stands on the shoulders of giants like people who have stood in the rain or lit candles or cut fences or whatever they have done to say not in our name. And, you know, to see us now with a tool that we can use to actually ramp up the pressure on these worst weapons, shrink the space and take it away from a dialogue of, you know, geopolitical security and lots of acronyms that you ordinary people wouldn't understand and into a dialogue of, do you think it's really okay to push the button on an illegal weapon that doesn't discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, that takes out kids, that takes out everyone and that has an intergenerational fallout impact if we ever last that long, because we don't reckon that's okay, and nor does international law. Mm. It's going to be some interesting times ahead. Absolutely. And on that, what can we and listeners do to, to support that and to, to keep going on that fight? Yeah, lots. I suppose one thing is to, is to uh, Zeb, it's to elevate the issue, because for some it's like either too big or old, and it's neither. We, in the same way that we can talk about climate change, the other existential threat, climate change reduces our chances every day. Nuclear weapons can end them in a day. And both need urgent address. So we talk about it, raise it, talk up this treaty, not in a super naive way, but in a hopeful instrument way, and ask our politicians, our political leaders, to support Australia signing and ratifying this treaty. We need to grow momentum where the expectation, not left right, but just decent and human, is that this country will sign and ratify this treaty and advance a nuclear free future. We need to RTROize, we need to New Zealandize Australia in relation to nuclear. We need to just go cross the board. We've dodged a bullet because we don't have reactors, we don't have nuclear weapons, and we're not part of that. We're not going to play or facilitate that. ICANN's looked at it really quite deeply too, because you have to, and it is possible, whether one likes it or not, our major military alliance is with the US, and it is possible to continue that alliance and military engagement with a slight recalibration and you're compliant with this treaty. So you've sent a signal to the US as home of the most nuclear weapons, US and Russia are, but you haven't ruptured the entire you know, framework of the politics or defence arrangements. And the same thing, I think the New Zealand example of this is really important. So grow pressure on Scott Morrison, surround Labor and get them to actually own and celebrate the commitment they've made. They've done the hard yards, they've adopted a policy commitment and they've come out publicly and said they'll do it. So they should now own and celebrate it and advance it and talk about it because this now needs to come out of the closed circle of blokes in suits talking geopolitical acronyms and be an issue 
of concern for people because it is a profound concern to all people, the existence of these weapons. Just a little note for listeners that they're listening to City Limits and they're on 3CR and we're talking to Dave Sweeney, who's the anti-nuclear campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation. We're celebrating some good news. And Kevin wanted to give his congratulations. Over to you, Kevin. Yeah, well, just saying congratulations and, you know, to you and all the people who've been involved for so long. And, uh, and of course, it's a step in a way. I mean, as you say, there's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot of work being done to get to this stage, but there's still a lot more work to be done to get to the end result. Oh, absolutely. Look, thanks very much, everybody, for kind words. And it is a really... It is a really powerful and positive thing. And often, you know, sometimes we're really caught up in whatever our struggle or or whatever issue we're campaigning and working on. And we don't step back sometimes and go, wow, this is a big thing. We've just done a big thing. People who don't like nuclear weapons have just done a big thing. And so that's great. But you're absolutely right, Kevin. Now it's sort of like, you know, we've given ourselves the tools for the job. Now we've got to do the job. So it is, you know, it's sort of not the end of nuclear weapons, it is the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons. You know, we are now tooled up to take on the Masters of War. We've just got a couple of minutes left, Kevin um, and Seb and Dave. So I'm imagining you do have some final questions, Kevin. Just another item, Dave, I know you're so concerned about the impact of mining on Indigenous communities. Santos in, um, in the Northern Territory is planning a massive project fracking and there was in fact an ad put in the um, financial review last week fracking in the northern territory is risky business origin energy have started fracking in the northern territory without proper consent from traditional owners and aboriginal communities whose water culture and country are at risk and it goes on but there's also the um the santos proposal so just a comment on that what's going on up there yeah, look, it's um, it's a really massive concern. It's a massive concern culturally for traditional owners, very many uh, and a very widespread um, collection and representation of traditional owners and nations have said that they've got either concerns or active opposition to these proposals. There's deep environmental concerns over, you know, again, the impact on water uh, resources, Kevin, but also like fracking releases um, significant amounts of methane, which is a really... Um, adverse gas and a really adverse material for carbon and for um, rising temperature. It's really damaging as a climate change uh, accelerator. So there's really deep concerns and, you know, it is exactly the wrong way. Like we don't need to be looking for more dirty energy reserves and resources to exploit in this country. We've said before on this show that Australia is so lucky. We're wealthy We've got good manufacturing and industrial infrastructure. We've got smart workforce that is now in a period of transition. And rather than being fear-filled about this and, and trying to play blue-collar wedges with urban and all this sort of stuff, what we actually need to do is transition our country, which used to make stuff and now makes money in real estate and coffee, again into manufacturing. And we need to be manufacturing not digging holes and ripping up the Beetaloo Basin or elsewhere. We need to be manufacturing wind turbine solar panels, the recycling of solar panels, the closed loop of energy technology. We need to be also developing cutting edge mining rehabilitation stuff, 50,000 abandoned and leaking mines in this country. Let's get some miners into work filling holes rather than making them. There's a whole recalibration and a retweaking like the Rubik's Cube, you know. We need to just tweak it around to get alignment of this country with regional employment, economic growth, renewably powered. And we need to stop this archaic Dickensian obsession that energy sources need to be dirty, that they need to be polluting fossils or intergenerational risk carcinogenic nuclear. We are well placed to lead a renewable revolution in the fastest growing energy sector in the world. That's where we should be. Okay, Dave, look, thanks for that. And once again, congratulations on that wonderful news about ICANN. But, um, and again, also, I guess, BHP's situation at Olympic Dam. So a couple of good news stories this morning. 
Uh, one very good news story, obviously, but uh, we'll get back to you at some stage. Once again, thanks for your time and what you give so generously to this program. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kevin. And thanks, uh, thanks Meg and Zeb and, and to City Limits in general. Um, I love catching up. And it is um, <laughs> great to have a couple of big ticket good news items as opposed to often it's like embattled items or, you know, more sort of reasons to be like, oh, isn't this further proof that the whole system is a setup? And we know it is, but it's also good to see that light gets through the hardest walls. And we've shone a bit of light with this treaty. And um, yeah, it's good in the nuclear space to finish a conversation saying thanks for the compliments, good work to go, and good news on this front. Yes, and that's well. That's it for the program. Next week we've got transport. We've got an activist in the union coming on, and we'll also have our regular transport commentator, John McPherson. And Dave, as the guest, could you thank Karina today for doing such a fabulous job keeping us on air, and the 3CR staff for what they're doing to keep all our programs going. I would be very rapt to do that, Kevin. Thanks, Karina, for keeping City Limits Unlimited. Thanks, 3CR, in difficult times and in non-face-to-face times for reaching out and living in our lounge rooms or wherever we happen to be and not skipping a beat of news and solidarity and support that keeps us all in touch and intact and with hope. So thanks, Karina. Thanks, City Limits. Thanks, 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.